dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our reading from the Old Testament book of Job and also in the light of our gospel reading from the gospel of Mark. And I realize it's like two weeks in a, two, two weeks in a row where we hear about a, uh, a believer dealing with extensive loss. Last week we talked a little bit about, um, well, we talked quite a bit about the sacrifice of Isaac and God saying, I want you to go sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, and now this. Last week, God said, go and do this, and this week, Job and his wife are enjoying their day. Job living, you know, probably around the time of Abraham, maybe a little bit earlier than him, and the wealthiest man in the Middle East. And they're enjoying their day and, you know, sitting out on the back patio and, and the workday is done. And then one by one, the messengers start flying in. It's almost like they're sitting there and then, you know, the phone just doesn't stop buzzing. And reading through this, obviously there's the, there's the emotional impact of, of the loss, of all of his visible, physical, tangible wealth being consumed, destroyed, and lost. And then, obviously, the emotional impact of losing not just one or two, but all of his children. And when we look at the book of Job, I think the first thing that we have to see, this is still in the introductory part, I suppose, the first thing we have to see is that the entire book of Job is part of what we call Old Testament wisdom literature. Old Testament wisdom literature. So you're thinking Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And the whole point of all these things, the whole point of these books, is especially to sit down and to discuss them together. If you're just reading by, by yourself, yes, you can have a similar experience, but you have to read more slowly than reading like, well, slow down and try to follow the train of thought and what is actually being said. And so when we look at Job chapter 1, the biggest question is the question of suffering, the question of why. And when I was preparing for this, um, it kind of hit me in the face. <laughs> Obviously, the reading is what it is, and, um, and you deal with those things, and people deal with loss at every stage of life, at every place in this world. But the thing that jumped out to me was one of um, my greatest fears as a pastor. And, you know, it's not the fear of, of having to do a funeral. It's not the fear of, of losing a fellow Christian. It's the fear that talking about these things like Job and suffering, that talking about these things are proposed in such a way that everybody shakes their head and says, yeah, that makes sense. As if to say that, that the Christian faith we have and your worldview align so closely that maybe your life has been shaped by Scripture and you have a set of beliefs that um, align with God's law to a greater or lesser degree, and all it is is just a little bit of talking about this Jesus guy or a little bit of talking about this Job um, character and, and the tragedy that affects him, 
But for the most part, we just incorporate that into how you already think. That sounded a little esoteric, perhaps. But the main idea is this, that if you already have a fairly um, conservative idea on, on how to approach life, how to understand life, it would be very easy and very simple to look at Scripture and say, that makes sense, I'm just going to move on. To look at Scripture and say, this makes so, uh, so much sense that it just fits right in like a puzzle piece with the way that I already think, and we just try to incorporate this idea, whatever idea Scripture is proposing to us, try to incorporate it into the way that we already think, as if there is nothing that God would have to say that would be truly offensive. That idea, the idea that if we just already think a particular way and we just have to sprinkle a little Jesus on top and then it's all Christian, um, that idea is kind of terrifying to me because for, for two reasons. I guess the first reason is it's still only a, a logical idea. It's not truly faith. A logical idea where I have this set of values, I have this set of principles, I have this set of ethics already that came prepackaged with who I am, and I'm just going to add Jesus to that. That's not faith. That is um, trying to rationalize this God so that he makes sense, so that he fits himself into the way I already think. And the result of that is either one of two things. It doesn't hold up under pressure, or it doesn't see where anybody else would fit next to me in this Christian faith especially if their ideas, their values, their character, their ethics somehow don't fit precisely with mine. I guess that's the biggest thing. Because it is, it is a fear. We talk a lot about this Jesus guy and about the fact of his, uh, his crucifixion, the fact of his incarnation, the fact that he is the eternal Son of God without beginning and without end, and yet he took on our human flesh in order to carry our sin. We could talk about all that, but if we think to ourselves, oh, this makes sense, and it all makes sense, and I've heard this for uh, 30 years, 60 years, I've heard this, and wrap it all together, and every now and then give it a good stir so that I see things from a different direction, then, you know, that's what my Christianity is. And to what degree, then, is your Christian faith really rationalizing Christian ideas, but not faith? And I think that, in particular, is why and where um, Old Testament wisdom literature fits. Old Testament wisdom literature that proposes to us a problem um, early in the book of Job. Early in the book of Job, we see, we see Satan go and talk to God, and God's like, where you been? And Satan says that he's been roaming back to Job. We see God taking credit for it, as well as God saying, Satan is the cause of this. And that's all the setup, that's all the background, that's all the setup that we have until we see Job and his wife enjoying their back patio with some Mai Tais, some, uh, some nice music and the gentle breeze and the cool of the day, and then the messengers come. 
And the big looming question over the entire narrative is why? Why? <laughs> you know, all of, all of your wealth and all of your cattle, all of your servants, all of your children, all of it gone. Why? That discussion is going to go back and forth throughout the whole book of Job. But what God is really saying is that you can't judge by your human reason, by appearances. You can't just incorporate um, and try to make every single element of your Christian faith make sense, because then it's not faith. Then it's ration, reason, rationality. Then it's um, a set of Christian thinking that might align with what God says, but if it is only reason, if it is only all what makes sense to me and I'll dismiss what doesn't, then all you have is a God of law, a God of external order, a God that, that anybody apart from Scripture would still be able to understand because it all makes sense. And that question why did all this happen to Job? His friends come and say, what did you do wrong? How did you incite God? How did you offend God? What did you do? Surely it must have been something. And they go back and forth, and Job says, no, I didn't do anything. And they're like, well, come on. Surely you have. You have to be honest with us, Job. This doesn't just happen out of nowhere. Job says, I didn't do anything. And it culminates in, um, in chapter 19 where Job gets nearly as close as he gets to shaking his fist at God to say, I didn't deserve this. He says, I want God to come down here. I'm going to ask him some questions. I want my words engraved with an iron tool on lead so that they will stand forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I want him here right now. And I'll stand before him at the end of time. I will be raised from the dead. I will see him with my own eyes, but I want an answer. Why? Have you ever felt that way? The tug of wanting to know exactly why. Wanting to parse out all the details, and even if we have an answer from Scripture, okay, Pastor, I get that, but, but really, why? And our human mind raises up its ugly head and says, this needs to make sense to me. This has to be accommodated to the way that I feel. This has to line up with what I want if I am going to believe this because otherwise it is just preposterous and God, you're a little bit out of step with where we should really be. And reason continues. Well, maybe we shouldn't just um, you know, talk about that part quite so much. If um, we weren't so offensive to human reason, then maybe, you know, we would have a better, better job, you know, doing ministry on college campuses. If we weren't so offensive to human reason and we had answers, if we had answers for every single question that anybody had, then surely, surely then our church would be the best at retaining young people in their 20s and 30s. It's all a question of why. Whether it was, whether it was for you, um, the, the moment of Job in your own life, where you just, it was one after another and finally culminated with, I don't know if I can take this anymore. Why is all this happening? Or whether it was something a little bit um, less than that. Whether it was, you know, just what is going on and why me? 
Jesus has an answer for that too, because that's kind of the, the rest of the story here. When he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, he must take up his cross daily and follow me, which is almost maybe even more confusing than the whole book of Job. <laughs> like, here's Jesus. He knows he's going to be crucified. And the Jewish people have this thinking because God said it. Um, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And they would say, wow, you know, what, Jesus, what a way to go. Come on, <laughs> that is not okay. Don't you know how, how despicable that is? Don't you know how reprehensible that is? Don't you know how disgusting that is? I, would, I wouldn't want, you know, my worst enemy to go through that. And you, Jesus, you're going to say that you're going to be going to be crucified. And that if I want to follow you, I will also have a cross that marks my life. Hmm. Obviously, his cross, where he carried sin for the entire world, where no sin was left out, no matter how great or small we estimate it to be. His cross where God punished all sin in him. But that same cross marks your life. We even kind of included at the beginning of the worship service, we begin in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is just echoing what we do at the baptismal font. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of reflected in the closing blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you sign on the cross again, and we all sing amen. <laughs> wow. And you put those two together. And even if you haven't been in Job's sandals, even, you know, God be praised. But Jesus says that following him necessitates a cross. Not a cross to atone for your sin or pay for your sin, but a cross of suffering that if there is following that happens, then there is a cross that follows. If there is following of Jesus, then there is a cross that marks your life too. And it's the same question that the entire book of Job asks, why? I guess before that, you know, what do we mean by a cross? If it is the necessary consequence, like if you want to follow Jesus, there will be a cross. It's the necessary result of following Jesus. Then this cross isn't just any old suffering in the world because tornadoes strike and earthquakes strike everyone. But this cross is suffering that is unique to the Christian as well as any other sort of suffering that is then suffered by a Christian. And, and it's a temptation. It's a temptation to go by what I see, by what I feel, by what I think, and to say, this is how I know God loves me and cares for me. For instance, well, I have a life of prosperity, a life of ease. The tornado didn't strike my house. It hit, uh, it hit across the lake. The cross says that if I suffer, then God has it out for me. The cross that says, me living a Christian life will bring conflict with those that I love. 
me living a Christian life means that I will not do things that my, that my neighbor does. I will miss out on, on perhaps some of the friends who just don't see exactly the fact that I am different. The cross means making choices that are a sacrifice of time or of effort or of, of money. The cross means walking along behind Jesus and following Jesus, not just when life is good, but especially especially when following Jesus means that those you don't know or those that you do know look at you and think, why don't you just back off a little bit? If you were a Christian, they assert. If you were a Christian, then you would be nicer to me. You would, you know, stop talking about uh, this Jesus thing. You would stop harping on me to come to worship with you. If you were a Christian, then your Christianity should look like something that I expect. Do you start to see the overlap? Job says, why? Pastor Hagen's fear is that our congregation... <laughs> Our congregation and, and the time that we spend together only results in incorporating a little bit of Jesus into the way that we already think. And, and we don't talk about the things that don't make sense. We don't talk about the things that are offensive because we want to only stick to the things that are logically defensible and that the questions are always there and we will talk about them ad nauseum because every single question deserves an answer. That's not really faith. That's rationality. It's the same rationality that says in the voice of Peter, Lord, you'll never have a cross. Lord, I don't want you to suffer. It's the same rationality that says, does, does following Jesus mean suffering in my life? I'll just tone it down a little bit, turn the dial down a little bit. I won't be quite so Christian, and um, maybe I won't uh, talk so much about what my church believes because, well, then you won't like me. That my Christian faith means, to some degree, suffering. My Christian faith means, to some degree, temptation. My Christian faith is this constant battle between the way my mind thinks and the way my mind wants things to be and what God says in his word, and at some level, I will never be able to reconcile those. My Christian faith and my reason says that if God really cared, then he wouldn't have let this happen to Job. Do you see the cross? The suffering that, that happens, whether it's the internal struggle or the external realities that are applied to us, and the internal struggle that says, I know my Jesus loves me, but why then? Why is there so much conflict? Because Jesus is, you know, he's, he's the most loving man of all time. He carried my sin. He took it away. So then why does following him take such effort and result in such pain? And how could that be a blessing? Because Jesus wants to use that cross to crucify our human reason, to quiet our objections, and say, God is God, and I am not. 
God is God and I am not, and he is worth following to the very end, that God is God and I am not, and that my confession of this faith is the, the most influence that I can have in my entire life. That if, if it does take a little bit of extra sacrifice on my, on my part to live in a way that aligns with God's law, if it does take a little bit of extra sacrifice on my part so that, um, so that somebody actually hears exactly what I believe, not just as a collection of truths, but stitched together into a beautiful fabric of this is what we believe, this is the Jesus who came for you and for me, then so be it. Because the question that Job begins with is, is why, and the interesting thing is God never tells him. <laughs> God never tells him why. I mean, we have a little bit in the beginning. Job never heard that as far as we know. But not, God never tells him why. Job was shaking his, his fist at heaven and said, I know my Redeemer lives and I want him here right now. And eventually God does show up. Here's the hint. When you read the book of Job, like underline every single time there's a reference to weather, like a leaf blows through or the branches sway in the breeze. Because the whole, I think if you think of it like that, the whole story of the book of Job is the building a storm to when God comes to speak to Job. And Job says, all right, I've got some questions. And God says, you know what, sit down. I've got some questions for you. Where were you when the mountains were born? <laughs> go make some light, Job. If you can go make some light, then come back and we'll talk. Hmm. And there, right there, is the point. That your Christian faith, yes, it is logical, but it is, it is also above your human logic. That your Christian faith is reasonable, but it is beyond your human capacity to understand. That, you know, even when the uh, Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door, I tell people, don't ridicule them for what they believe as illogical, even though it is, because you realize you confess the exact same sort of illogical belief. I believe that Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. How in the world does God Almighty take up residence within the sinful? How in the world does infinite God localize himself finitely? And it all comes down to that same question that we want to know why. God doesn't always tell us why any particular thing happens. He says, you know, human, human being, it's time to sit down. And even though he doesn't tell us every single why things happen as they do, he does tell us why he did what he did. And that's the most illogical part of it all. He does tell us why he took on our human flesh, why he became your brother. He does tell us why he chose to lead a sinless life for 30-plus years. He does tell us why he allowed himself to be crucified under Pontius Pilate and laid in a borrowed tomb. He does tell us, and it's this mystery that you could like stand at the edge of the cliff and peer down and you will never see the bottom of it. It's the mystery called grace. Of all the things that are offensive to human reason... <laughs> Human suffering is the least offensive because you can make a, you can talk about that. 
Of all the things that are offensive to human reason, all the the topics that you cover in a book of apologetics, uh, they pale in comparison to the fact that God became human in order to um, carry sin. That for those who um, offended him, those who broke his law, those who lived unholy, unrighteous lives, he said, you know what, that is disgusting, gross, that is, um, you know, the sort of crimes that you cover your children's ears and you cover and you turn the news off and don't let them see that, don't let them read that, and there's an entire world of that. And God says, that's mine. That's grace. That most irrational super-rational, above our human logic, that most super-rational idea that God in His grace didn't demand anything from you, but He decided to give. And through that light, and only through that light, can we begin to understand the book of Job. There's um, there this, this one quote that I came across. There's nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times be afflicted like the Canaanite mother and like her flee to Christ than live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without Christ and without hope. So go ahead, read the book of Job, and how does it end? After this entire discussion where God never answers why, the God of all grace says here, but let me demonstrate grace one more time. Job had twice as many camels, twice as many donkeys, twice as much cattle, twice as much wealth, and he got the same number of kids. And you look at that, and it's like, oh, God, yeah, sure, if you take away all my stuff and then you give it back to me in the end, that would be all great. That would be wonderful. That would be great. I can handle suffering if I know I'm going to get 100% return on my investment. But he did not, he only got the same number of children that he had in the beginning. They weren't doubled. And there's the last little part, because they were never lost. That even though they passed away in the collapse of the house, God is demonstrating in a subtle way that those who believe in Christ are not lost, that it is through, yes, even if it is through suffering, that God takes a person to heaven. Even if it does look like pain and failure and loss when a believer passes away, God says, dear Christian, do you see your Lord's care for you? That we like to ask why, and God says, no, let me tell you why. Grace salvation forever. Amen.